direct our attention, at least get our title from verse 5, where Paul says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, which is translated blessing, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. Now you recall in chapter 8, Paul is beginning to help the church complete the task for which they were zealous and forward a year ago. In fact, he would say in this chapter, they had provoked and stirred many, even the Macedonians, which gave a liberal gift for the poor saints of Jerusalem. They were stirred into action by the example of the Corinthians, but the Corinthians who were zealous and forward didn't bring the offering to completion. Now Paul, out of their repentance in chapter 7, is encouraging them to complete the task and give God honor for it. So in verse 5, he tells us two things here. One is that he sent brothers. He sent a delegation of men, three men, you learn in chapter 8, Titus and two men that are unnamed. Paul did this for two reasons. One, in verse 20 of chapter 8, he would say, avoiding this, that no one would blame us for this ministration. Providing things honest, not only in the sight of God, but also in the sight of men. Paul knew the accusations he often incurred as being covetous and misusing money. He wanted to clear the air of any potential blame that he had mismanaged the money, or that he was covetous, or that he had used impropriety in collecting the gifts. So he sends three men ahead before Paul comes with people from Macedonia, to make up beforehand so that there would be accountability and carefulness. And beloved, you know as well as I do, churches have split over money. And so that reminds us we need to be careful and have mechanisms in place. Not only in the sight of God, Paul could say, I handled this rightly in the presence of God, but he would say also in the presence of men. That means if anybody outside this church or inside this church, you as well, for which we're accountable to should be able to look at our books or anything that we do or anything that the deacons spend in a way that we could say there has been no impropriety. Paul was very careful, and so he sent the three men. You'll find that at the end of chapter 8. But there's another reason here. He sent them ahead of time so that their generosity would not be a matter of covetousness, but a matter of bounty. I'm going to take that phrase as my title this morning, a matter of blessing, because bounty can be translated blessing. Your giving, my giving should be a manner of blessing. So there are going to be four things under this heading. First of all, the principle of giving we'll find in verse 6. The manner of giving, how do we get there? How do we become bountiful givers? The grace of giving. How do the promises empower that? And then the fruit of giving, the fruits of righteousness that are born out of bountifully giving. So we start in verse 6. Paul says, but this I say, this is what I'm trying to say regarding this matter of bounty or matter of covetousness. It's this, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. This is a universal maxim. It's a proverbial saying. 
related to agriculture that you all know, you reap what you sow. Whatever you put in the ground is going to come out of the ground. But also, the amount that you reap corresponds to the amount that you put in the ground. Okay? If we sow sparingly, the corresponding amount is very little. If we sow bountifully, the rule, the principle is we reap bountifully. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, first of all, just thinking of an illustration of this principle, you just take one wheat kernel, one wheat berry, drop it in the ground. You get one stalk, and on that stalk you get about five heads, and on each head you get 22 seeds for a grand total of 110 seeds. On average, depending on moisture, sunshine, insects, about 110 seeds. Now, that's a pretty good yield on your investment, but you won't make any bread out of that. Grind up 110 wheat seeds, and you can't even hardly make a piece of bread. Now, let's talk about bountiful sowing. If one seed yields, let's say, 100 seeds, then 10 seeds yield what? 1,000 seeds. Then 100 seeds, 10,000. Then 1,000, 100,000. Then 10,000, 1 million. Now, here's the question that's burning on your minds. Are these men right that say, sow a seed of faith and reap a harvest of wealth? Heard a man just this week using this passage to say, God wills for every Christian to be rich so that they can give richly. Now the last part of that I affirm, but the first part I object, object or reject based on what Paul is saying in this chapter. If that were true, what's motivating you to give? Is it not the wealth that you would incur, the bountiful harvest that you would get out of sowing, the 10 seeds, 100 seeds, and of course the seed of faith would be dollars. And there's no doubt Paul is talking about money. We, we can't deny that. And there's no doubt there is a bountiful reaping, a blessing out of a blessing in sowing. That is undeniable. But what we question, is God's will for every Christian to be rich so that they can reap richly and then sow richly? And of course, there's always the caveat, sin gets in the way. You know, and since Paul wasn't rich, he probably had a lot of sin that kept him from getting there, right? I don't think that's the case. So this is the principle that God gives us. And now Paul is going to unpack the principle in what follows. The principle of giving is we should be bountiful in our giving. In the original, there's a preposition there that you can't see, on bountiful or on blessing. We should be giving on blessing so that we reap on blessing or bountifully. All right, so Paul now is going to tell us how this principle is true in our lives and what he means by the bountiful harvest that we reap. Verse 7. Here's how. Here's the manner in which we should give. It flows out of that principle. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or out of necessity. Why? Because or for God is loving, present tense verb, is loving a cheerful giver. All right, here's the manner. Here's what Paul is doing. He's telling us of two kinds of hearts. A heart that gives as a matter of blessing and a heart that gives as a matter of covetousness. So bountiful giving is every man, 
every person, every Christian, purposes in his heart. Because God loves a cheerful giver. The negative is, not out of grudgingly. You can't see the preposition in English, but in the Greek. Out, ek, grudgingly. Ek is out of. Out of what? A certain kind of heart. Right? A certain kind of heart that's begrudging and sees giving as, well, it's necessity. Okay? Two kinds of hearts. The question is, what kind of heart do you have this morning? It'll make the difference in bountiful giving or sparingly giving. So let's first look at the kind of heart where Paul is saying, this is not the way we should be giving. This kind of heart gives, but it's the wrong way to give. And so it goes like this. Covetous heart, sparingly, grudgingly, necessity. Paul says, not like that, right? A covetous heart is going to always give sparingly. Now, a covetous heart will give sparingly, which means stingily. Now, picture a man with a tight fist. And in his fist, he's got dollar bills hanging out between the fingers. You might be able to pull a couple out, a small amount, a sparing amount, but this kind of heart has a grip on the money. A covetous heart will give, but it will give tight-fistedly, right? Stingily. The reason this kind of heart gives stingily is because they see giving as a matter of grudgingly. It's a grief. It's a pain. It's sorrow. That's what the word means. Is that the kind of heart that we have this morning? <laughs> All right. Here. The word means annoyed. I'm just a little irritated. I'm agitated. Why? Why would anybody be irritated? Covetous heart, tight-fisted, annoyed. It's a grief. Then necessity. Now remember Paul says, not out of this kind of heart. Why am I adding the word heart? Because of the preposition ek, which you can't see here. Go check it out. It's in the Greek. May ek, and then the Greek word, not out of grudging. Because a covetous heart is grudging when it gives. It gives, and it does it out of necessity, which means this. Imposed by external circumstances or the law of duty. Now, that's very telling, isn't it? External circumstances. Like a child who's got a bag of M&Ms. When I was a child... Maybe even now, when I got a bag of M&M's, I thought if one tastes good, just dump the whole thing in your mouth. Just explosion of chocolate. I know that I, I reveal things about myself that I should. Just as many as you can get in there, the better. All right? Then there's the little brother who wants some of the candy. And a heart like mine sometimes wants all 50 pieces in my mouth. I don't know how many in a bag. I want all of them. Then comes... Imposition, external circumstances. Here comes mom. You share with your brother. What does a covetous heart do? Hanging on to the bag. He takes one M&M and here you go. Out of necessity. Why did he give the M&M? Why did he give the dollar? Well, he had to. It was imposed of external necessity. 
Why would I give that way? Covetous heart, tight-fisted, grief. Okay, here's your M&M. Now be gone. The other meaning of necessity is the law of duty. And you know that duty means a task performed because it's required. It's like the husband who on an anniversary takes his wife on a wonderful trip. I don't know, pick your place. I've never forgotten Hawaii. That's where my wife wants to go. Maybe before I die, I'll get her there. I thought it was another place. We played the wedding game and I lost. I never forgot it. So I take her to Hawaii and we're having a fine dinner together. I'm not going to skimp here. It's anniversary time. You, you can tell I'm committing myself to this. But anyway, it's anniversary time. We're having a fine meal. And I say, honey, I want you to know this. I want you to know one thing. I want you to know from the depths of my heart, I did this because it's required of a husband that he do this on the anniversary. Now, if she doesn't slap me, she's surely not honored by the giving, right? That's the law of duty. The law of duty will not work with God because it dishonors Him. So covetous heart, tight-fisted, grudgingly, got to do it, here it is. There is no divine approval for that kind of giving. Now, I would be totally untrue if I said to you, I've never struggled with that in money. I think you would be untrue too, right? It's our struggle. We struggle. But this kind of heart wants to keep as much as it can. So here's, here's a few things out of between my fingers, but I, I want to keep as much as I can because money is doing something for me that I don't think God can do. Therefore, not blessing, not bountiful, not reaping bountifully, stingy, tight-fisted, giving, grudgingly, got to do it. You know, don't you just hate when parents come in, children just say, you've got to do this. <laughs> All right, let's look at the other kind of giving. Let's ask ourselves, do we, do we have more of this kind of heart? Bountifully blessing. A heart that is purposed because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, let's first look at the word purpose. It means to choose one thing over another, to prefer, and then to purpose it. Now right there, the indication is that there's some thought. It's out of the heart. There's, there's some thought about it. I'm going to think over what I want to give. I'm going to think about the amount I should give. But I want you to notice one thing here. And we'll make some observations here. There is not a single indication of a percentage anywhere in this chapter. Do you know why? The amount is irrelevant. I'm going to say that again. The amount is absolutely irrelevant because it's a certain kind of heart that God is after that then is going to be bountiful. I don't care what the amount, right? So you won't find a tithe here. You won't find a percentage. Come on, Paul, give me a rule of thumb. Give me a suggestion. Could you just recommend an amount? He will not. Do you know why? If the Apostle Paul does that, what's going to happen? Grudgingly, necessity, Paul required it. He's the apostle. He's got authority. Here, Paul. Paul says, I won't do that. Paul will not mention a single percentage. 
He wants you, God wants you to purpose in your heart. Think about it. Now, just think about when you don't purpose. You know, you've had that time when you go to an intersection downtown and you get up there, unexpected, there are these firemen with boots and they're taking up a collection. There's people with buckets and they've got what the charity is. And then they start walking up to your car and you either keep the car window rolled up or you start going, you know, in your pocket, ashtray, and you drop in two quarters or whatever it is. Now, they just asked for a donation. It could have been 50 cents, $50, or $500. The sky's the limit. But when I'm unexpectedly giving, it's always just the very little amount. Now, whether you decide to give or not, right? Now, suppose they sent you a flyer or left you a voice message and said, I want you to know, we're going to be at the intersection. And this is the charity. And if you want to give, just give according to God's blessed you. And then you start to think about it. Well, you know, I like that charity. I think they're doing a good thing. What should I give? I guarantee it's going to be more than 50 cents or whatever change is lying in the ashtray or in your pocket, right? Now, that's just a practical illustration there. If it's spontaneous, typically it's just going to be the minimum. There's no thought to it. So Paul says every man purpose, he makes a choice, he's going to determine, he's going to resolve based on as the Lord prospered you, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, chapter 8, according to what you have, not what you don't have. See, there's no loan here, there's no going to, just whatever you have, God says, and as you purpose in your heart. All right? But... What is the experience of the heart that's purposed? The last part of the, part of the verse. Because God is loving a cheerful giver. Now I want you to see what Paul's doing here. As I say many times, it would seem to me Paul should not have said it that way. Logically. I would have thought he would have said, look, every man as you purpose in your heart, give because God loves a purposed heart. I mean, wouldn't that make sense? That's not what he says, because he wants us to understand the kind of heart that gives bountifully is a heart that has cheer. Do you see that? If God loves a cheerful giver, it stands the reason that the purposed heart is purposed out of cheer, right? Cheer. Now the word there is where we get our word hilarious, and sometimes men try to say we should be laughing. I, I think that's too much. I don't think it's required to laugh out loud when you give, but the idea of cheer is to be merry, right? God loves it when we give out of a merry heart, irrelevant the amount. Would you agree with that? Irrelevant. Because a certain kind of heart is just going to be bountiful. This is the kind of heart that's not saying, how much can I keep? This is the heart that says, how much can I possibly give? Do you see the difference? It's a heart that has an experience with God in a certain way that just says, how much can I give? Rather than, how much can I keep? Covetous heart, how much can I hang on to? Tight-fisted. Generous heart, how much can I let go of? Why does God love a cheerful giver? The reason God loves a cheerful giver is because of the reason the giver is cheerful. Think about that. And if the giver is cheerful in God, that pleases God, right? Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, example of the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes and gets the one sheep. 
I tell you likewise, there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth rather than 99 which need no repentance. Now, if there's joy in heaven, then God is experiencing joy over your repentance. Why is He not having joy in the 99? Because they don't need repentance or they don't need God. Because repentance, turning away from sin, is always turning to God as treasure. Faith and repentance are a two-sided coin. God experiences joy over the sinner's repentance because of the sinner's repentance, which is now joy in God. Turning away from broken wells and what we once had joy in, sin. Right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold. You know what that word means? A firm grip. Tight-fisted. He'll hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. When we serve money, we expect money out of covetous heart to give us something that only God can give us. Therefore, we hold to the money and we really despise God telling us to be a, general, a, a generous giver. Right? We love the master money and then we, we hate God. Maybe not with our words, but with our actions. Right? But if the tight fist can be released with his grip on money, how would that happen? By serving God. And how would we serve God? We love who God is and what He does for us, and we hold to God, and we despise money. I remember a preacher one time said, you ought to just kind of think of hating money. Just think of it. I hate that money. So I, I, need to, I need to give it away. I need to do something with it. That's probably pretty good counsel. Of course, he meant being bountiful. When God is loved, when God is held on to, we expect God to do what only God can do is to be the source of our cheer. See, If that's the way we serve money, and it is, a covetous heart holds on tight-fisted, is grudgingly giving out of necessity because we serve money and expect it to deliver on what we're after, which is joy, pleasure, and happiness. Then to serve God that way means... We need money. We have to have money. And Paul is talking about using money. Money is not evil in and of itself. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. We're serving God. Gives us a loose grip on money. And now we're asking, what can I give? Because God, in my experience of a purposed heart, is a heart that is in love with God and experiencing only what God can do for the heart. So that's the manner of giving from a purposed heart as opposed to a heart that is tight-fisted. Now, how do we get there? How is that going to happen? What will produce this cheer? What does Paul say specifically will give us this cheer? Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound. It's grace. Now we are to know that from the churches of Macedonia. Out of a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty, it abounded to the riches of their liberality. They were bountiful givers. What was the source of that? Verse 1. 
Brethren, moreover, I would to wit that you would know the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia that produces abundant joy. Paul is saying, church, you have the same grace available to you that produced the overflowing joy of the Macedonian churches that's going to be the key to your bountiful giving. Grace is the key to giving. So listen to what Paul says. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye always, from this day forward, time signature, always, there will never be a time in the life of the believer where grace is not available. Never. Always having all sufficiency, enough for what is necessary. We'll come back to that in a minute. Enough, you will have enough of what is necessary. Next. All sufficiency in all things, in every context, in every circumstance. You will never be in a place, a circumstance, or a location geographically where you can say, well, grace is just not available to me. I can't be that, can't do that, don't have enough grace. In all things, for what end? That you may abound to every good work, including, that's an expansive But including what? Bountiful giving. Grace is the source of our joy. Now I want you to see these two hearts are approaching God in two different ways. The covetous heart doesn't see God this way in verse 8. It's all bountiful. Overflowing with blessing. Overflowing with fullness like a fountain that never runs dry. How does he see him? As a taker. That's why Paul inserts this here. The covetous, tight-fisted, grudging, necessity giver approaches God that God is a hard God. He's just always making demands of me. Just always, give, do this, work, serve, go to church, be this. This represents the man that buried the towel in the ground. When the master came back to give an account, he had to give an account, he said, I knew you were a hard man. What does he mean by that? You always reap where you've never sown, and you gather where you've never strawed. So I just put it in the ground. I was afraid. Here's your, here. Here's what's yours. What's that? Necessity, grudgingly. The other two servants, out of joy, went and bore additional talents. What is he saying about God? You always demand things of people and you never provide the seed to do it. What's Paul saying? If God demands sowing, you can better believe you'll have the grace and the seed to do it. It's a wrong view of God. So God won't. He's not a provider, so I just got what I get. I got to hang on to it. Look out for number one. Got to make sure I can make it. It's not a bountiful heart. See, the wicked will always charge God for their failure to come to Christ. Well, if you had just given me grace, if you had just done this. No, it was owing to their covetous heart. People get all messed up in theology because they don't think that. Even common grace, the, the rain, the sun, the food, filling their hearts with joy and gladness, and they reject the idea of God. Why? No, that's not God's fault. It's theirs. 
So this kind of heart that's stingy approaches God as if God is just a taker. He just always gathers, never straws. God will not demand that you make bricks without providing the straw, ever. He's a front loader, like a front load tractor. He's bringing grace on the front end so that you've got the seed to do the very thing He calls you to do. Isn't that amazing? So you just freely, by grace, are able to give because God is so abundant, He's so good, He's so gracious to you that He gives you everything you need for life and godliness. And apparently, life and godliness includes what? Giving. Giving. How do you approach God? We're approaching God in His grace that He's able to make it abound to every good work. Now let's think about this phrase or words, having all sufficiency, which means having enough that is necessary. So in what way do we have enough that is necessary? Well, first of all, we've got to have enough seed. Whatever the amount doesn't matter the amount here. If we've got the kind of heart that's trusting God's grace, we know He's going to provide the seed, like the widow woman and the two mites in Luke 21, right? Jesus watched them casting into the treasury, the rich men, and then He saw this widow cast in two mites. He said, I tell you the truth, that woman's cast in more than all the rich men. Now, He certainly couldn't have been talking about monetary value. Two mites is very insignificant. What did He mean? He meant this, they of their abundance have cast into the treasury, but she out of her penury has cast in her living. Penury means poverty or need. Now the rich men cast in what they didn't need. Jesus is not condemning them. He wants to point to His disciples not to despise this widow woman's two mites. wasn't much, but it was liberal. How is it that that offering was more valuable than the abundance of the rich men? Because she cast in what had more value. Her life. She cast in what she needed for living. And she cast it all on the living God. Because God is gracious. And tomorrow He will provide what I need to eat. Because He's promised me. And so the promise of material gifts that we need to give and even to eat and live... Our God shall supply all that you need according to His riches and glory. That text in Philippians 4 is talking about money. See? You give abundantly, God's going to give you what you need. According to His wisdom and according to what He deems right, you'll have it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things according to God's will and His wisdom and His providence, you'll have it. You'll have it. Spiritual strength. You're going to abound every good work. You need grace for spiritual strength. And the, the Bible's abundant with that, isn't it? Hebrews 13, 20. Now the God of peace which brought again from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the blood of the covenant, raised him from the dead, according to the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will. How? Working in you that which gives him pleasure. That's a front end loader. You need to do the good work of giving, he's going to front load you with the seed. In every good work. That doesn't mean we're going to do every good work imaginable. It just means on the pathway that God has ordained, 
unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. He's going to provide the grace for those good works as we trust Him by faith. Grace comes. He's able to make all grace abound. Tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So what do we need to do? Trust Him for His grace, right? Trust Him. Spiritual strength. He is in you to be with you, to empower you to the work of obedience and good works. Right? You need spiritual promises. 2 Peter 1.5 Whereby is given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these promises you might be a partaker of the divine nature, like Christ. Christ was a giver. Christ bountifully gave all that He was for us. How do we take on that nature? Exceeding great and precious promises. Having escaped the world or the perishing of the world through lust. That's a form of covetousness, isn't it? We have escaped the reason the world is perishing, which is desire. And now we have these promises to shape us and to mold us, to have the Christ-like character of being givers in, in all the ways that God calls us to. So we've got material gifts that God will give us for doing what He calls us to do. We've got spiritual strength and we have spiritual promises. But now, one other nuance of this word, God's grace gives you everything that's necessary. The other meaning of this word is contentment. You must have contentment or we can't be bountiful givers. Now Paul's going to use three Old Testament quotes to back this up, for which we'll use two for time's sake. Parenthesis verse 9. As it is written. So he's going, to, he's going to come in from the Old Testament and shore up this God of all grace, giving us everything we need according to His wisdom for life, godliness, giving, whatever He calls us to do. First Psalm 112, verse 9, the verse that was read this morning. As it is written, He hath dispersed abroad, He hath given to the poor, His righteousness remaineth forever. That's not God's, that's yours. You're dispersing, you're giving to the poor, you're scattering the seed, your righteousness goes on forever, which means past the day of judgment. Psalm 112. First, you need to be content in Christ's righteousness for you. Just rest in it. And this is the good news. Your righteousness is not rooted in giving. Your righteousness doesn't remain because you give. Your righteousness exists because of Christ. He caused it. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Freely. No works, no prayer, no effort, nothing. You're justified by faith in Christ. Just resting in Him. Content with His righteousness. And because God is causing your righteousness to go on forever. You can't lose it because you cannot lose faith in Christ. You're kept by the power of God through faith. Now that rest, that contentment in knowing that not a dollar I give, not a thing I say will contribute to my righteousness, out of that peace and contentment, you just scatter, right? Just The guilt is gone. The sin is gone. And now there's nothing 
but Christ's righteousness. I'm content in my Savior's blood. I'm content in what He did for me. That's going to free my heart by grace to be a giver. Right? In Psalm 112, he adds the, the words there. He said, He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Right? A fixed heart is a steadfast heart in a certain direction. What's the direction of the fixed heart in Psalm 112? He scatters. He gives to the poor. His righteousness, caused, created, sustained by God, goes on forever. Because the giving and the good works are the fruit of a right standing with God. Justifying righteousness produces sanctifying righteousness or whatever the good works that the Spirit works through us. Those are not bringing about your righteousness. That's news to rest in. Imagine you had to get the mount right and get all the covetousness out and and, and have everything right before God, then you could get right based on giving. No, it's based on grace that gives rise to giving. So the heart is not afraid of evil tidings, evil news tomorrow. It doesn't say evil news won't come, but it's not afraid. Why? It's fixed, trusting in God. And then he says, his heart is established. He should not be afraid till he sees desire upon his enemies. And then the quote we have from Psalm 112. The heart to be established means sustained, upheld by God. Right? What's upholding it? Grace. When do the evil tidings come? Tomorrow. What will be there tomorrow? Grace. What will be there to sustain your righteousness tomorrow? Grace abounding, always, all sufficiency in all things to abound in every good work, no matter what the day brings. The grace of God will sustain and provide. So Paul uses that passage. Then verse 10, he would say, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. This is both Isaiah 55 and... Hosea 10, I think it is. We'll look at Isaiah 55. They both have a similar context. In Isaiah 55, God now is going to make clear He's not only the front loader on the seed, He's on the backside. He gives seed to the sower, but guess what? He gives bread to the eater. You sow the seed, it brings a harvest. and Dry the seed, grind it into flour, knead it, knead it, bake it. Bread. God's grace is all the way through it. Free, sovereign grace. Do you approach God that way? He's not only front-loading the seed, He's going to make sure there's bread for the eater because it's all of grace from start to finish. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 55, He's telling the wicked, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Why? He gives four reasons, one of which is what Paul quotes, which is the one I'll use. Why should you seek the Lord? For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, that watereth the earth, that it may bring forth in bud to give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word go forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void or vain. It shall accomplish all that I purpose it to accomplish." All right, now get the image of a dry, parched earth. No fruit. 
and then the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and the earth drinks in the water and things start to bud like on a beautiful spring day and the plants start to blossom and the seeds come and the wheat comes and there's seed provided by God and there's bread provided by God. Now God applies that to His Word. His Word needs to be something to you in order to be a bountiful blesser blessing uh, in your giving. And what is it? Isaiah 55, he says, This is how my word will go and will not return to me void. You shall go forth with joy. Like the earth, it just sucks in the rain. (sighs) That was so good. That was so satisfying. The word of God must be that for you or you won't be a generous giver. You know why? What's the opposite of covetousness? Or, yeah, contentment. In the Bible, the opposite of a covetous heart is a satisfied heart. And you can't obey unless you're content in Jesus Christ and growing in that contentment. Jesus alone satisfies, not money. I need it. It gives me good things. I can use it. But Jesus is the superior joy. Therefore, how much can I give? Not how much can I keep. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And 1 and 3, 1 through 3. God says, I want you to remember how I led you these 40 years. How I suffered you to hunger. So you would know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep my commands. I want you to know what it takes to keep my commands. And if this is in your heart. Well, what is it? The next verse. I suffered you to hunger. I proved you these 40 years to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now we need bread. Why? To satisfy the hunger. To give us strength. To give us nourishment. Now you can't live by bread alone because bread only does that for the body. But the Word of God brings contentment to the soul. That's what's necessary to keep commands. Because without it, you're going to be searching and looking for something to bring you contentment. Money, people, possessions, things, all things that we need. And God gives us the clue. It's a heart that's resting in the grace of God, that's content with all that God supplies, spiritually and even materially, whether it's little or a lot, right? And out of His rich supply, I always have enough sufficiency for every good work because I'm always pursuing contentment in God. Now you search your own heart right now and tell me in your own experience if that's not true. It is, isn't it? And then what happens? Your seed sown increase the fruits of your righteousness. All right, now let's just close with, I'm just going to mention them. The fruits of giving. Verse 11. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness. Now some people take this because the word being enriched means to make rich or to furnish richly. There it is. God wills for Christians to be rich so that they can give bountifully. Yes, I agree, so they can give bountifully. But this text does not say that. Being enriched is a participle passive that points us back to verse 8, 
We are enriched with the grace of God to all bountifulness. Right? This word in the Greek is used only three times in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And each of the two times has nothing to do with money. God had enriched the church with spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 1.5. Knowledge and utterance. Paul said, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich. Now do we think he was helping people play the stock market to get rich? Not a bad thing, but not what he meant. Rich in the gospel. As having nothing but possessing everything. Paul had nothing. Are we to believe Paul didn't sow bountifully? Galatians 2.10, the apostles had encouraged Paul to give to the poor, which he said, I did eagerly, yet he's still poor. If anybody should be rich, it would be Paul, but he's not. He wasn't. What about the churches of Macedonia? There's no indication that they ever got out of their deep poverty. But in their poverty, they gave liberally. And such an interpretation ignores the warnings of the Bible concerning money. If God wills for me to be rich, He wants me to be rich. Do you know how that dangerous that could be for me? Because many pierce their souls with sorrows, and it drowns men in perdition and destruction. Those that want to be rich, it drowns them. So if God's will is rich, I want it, and if I want it, I'm going to drown in perdition and destruction. That makes no sense. No, God will determine the amount of seed. Through your work. And some of you will be rich and some of us won't be. And it will be for our good not to be. And it will be for the kingdom if you are. Right? So God is enriching us with His grace and He's providing the seed according to His wisdom and His knowledge and His providence. We see this throughout the Bible. So that we may abound and be bountiful according to what God provides. There's no amount. It's just what you have, how He prospers you. That's individual. That's different. That's, that's not the same. And what does it bring? Thanksgiving to God. He mentions that twice. God is magnified through thanksgiving for the bountiful gift. The people in Jerusalem are just thanking God for His grace through the church. Next, for the administration, verse 12, of this service not only supplies the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgiving unto God. It literally supplies the want of the saints in Jerusalem. That's a reason of joy. God has used us to provide a need. Isn't that a joy? That's a blessing. Next, verse 13, whilst by this experiment, the approval of this ministration or this giving... They glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ. They see grace in your life and obedience. God is magnified. God is glorified. That's the fruits of righteousness. It's just being scattered all over the planet. Verse 14. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. They see grace in you, the saints of Jerusalem, and there's a bond of fellowship in what? Love and prayer. They long after you now. They love you. And they start praying for you. Why? Because they see grace showering down in your life and going out to others. They see your love for God and love for others. And they love you. They love grace. They love God. And then finally, doxology. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Unspeakable not meaning, well, we can't even talk about this. It's indescribable what God has done for you and me as sinners. 
It is over the top. He spared not his own son. Was God stingy? Is God a tight-fisted God? He gave what he loved infinitely. How shall he not be a giver? For the straw you need to make the bricks, for the, sow, for the seed you need to, to make the bread and to sow the seed. Everything supplied through the unspeakable gift of Christ. May God bless us to have hearts, because it is of grace, isn't it? We rely on Him, we trust Him, we pursue Him. Say, Lord, give us this kind of heart. We take this principle of giving, we want to be bountiful givers in a manner that you love out of joy in our hearts because of the grace of God that's been bestowed on the church of heritage. Just abundant grace. And then we we ask, Lord, give us these fruits of overflowing righteousness to the glory and honor of your great name. Let's pray. Father, you're a great God. And first, we want to pray a prayer of confession. We know, Lord, our hearts, how easily we can be covetous because we still have the remaining corruption of sin within us, even though we are in a state of grace, trusting in you. So, Lord, help us to be bountiful givers by approaching you in a way that we see you as the great fountain of life. The one whom Paul says, who first gives to God that it may be recompensed to him again? No one. Because of you, through you, and to you is everything. Lord, you are rich in grace to us. May we come under the waterfall of your grace and so drink from your word that it produces the kind of cheer that we would say as a church... How much can we give? Where can we give? Instead of a heart that tries to give as little. We confess that to you. We ask for your grace. And we pray that you would crown it with your grace, glorify your name through it, and continue to bless this church to be liberal givers. As they have been, may we increase more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.